Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And all of God's people say, Jonah and the whale is one of the biblical passages best known by unbelievers. In terms of vivid familiarity, Jonah and the whale, actually it's a large fish, but Jonah and the whale is on par with with David and his five smooth stones, Noah and the flood, Elijah and the Almighty's still small voice. Everybody knows it. Paradoxically, most believers know very little of the narrative arc and the theological message of the book of Jonah. Jonah is no more a children's story than yesterday's dispatches from the West Bank. According to the book of Kings, Jonah was from Gath-Hephar, a village in the region that would become Galilee. The book of Jonah itself gives us no background material or biographical information without an iota of introduction or warning. The Lord hijacks an otherwise anonymous believer's life and calls him, go to Nineveh and preach. And Jonah responds, to Nineveh? There is no verse in the hymn dedicated to the prophet Jonah, here I am, Lord, send me. No, instead, Jonah hightails it to Tarshish. Tarshish was in modern-day Spain. Nineveh, meanwhile, was in Assyria, Babylon, modern-day Iraq. Just so, called to go east, Jonah goes west. Summoned to travel over land, Jonah runs to the shipyard in Joppa. Deployed to the cosmopolitan city, Jonah buys a one-way ticket to escape to the end of the world where he hopes God is not. It's in the midst of his attempted escape from God's call that Jonah suffers the only part of the story you likely know. Of course, the joke is on us. A whale swallowing up Jonah and then spitting him up in the direction whence he came is not nearly as ridiculous as Jonah endeavoring to avoid a living God. Jonah can no more slip loose of God's summons upon him than the disciples could have resisted the Lord's command to come and become fishers of men. Again, everybody knows about the whale, but few know the why behind Jonah ending up inside the whale. Everyone knows about the whale, but few know the why behind the whale. It's not a children's story. It's a political story. It's a political story. Nineveh was a a growing city at the edge of the empire that would eventually invade the promised land, plunder its wealth, raise its temple, and exile God's elect people back to Babylon. Nineveh tortured their captives with a violence so depraved it would make Hamas cringe. Nineveh then celebrated their cruelty in their art and their architecture. 
And thus, Ninevites were known in Jonah's day as the terrorists of the ancient world. Go to Nineveh and preach. Leave Pennsylvania Avenue and go to Mar-a-Lago and preach. The Israelites hated the Assyrians as much as Gazans hate Israel today. The Israelites hated the Assyrians as much as Israelis hate Hamas today. To them, God says, go. And because of them, Jonah says, no. No. I remember during our second war in Iraq, I preached a sermon during Lent in which I discussed the use of state-sponsored torture, which the newspapers had only recently begun reporting. I was young and brash and not very smart. As soon as I handed over the benediction, a church member assaulted me in the narthex, and sticking his finger in my chest, he hollered at me, just where do you get off preaching like that, preacher? And I stammered, well, Senator, I said, (laughs) it is Lent, and, and, and the Lord was tortured to death. And Senator Roberts of the Armed Services Committee shook his head and he waved his finger at me. You tell me, preacher, if Jesus was still alive, do you honestly think he'd have anything to say about torture in the government? Uh, well, Senator, uh, I mean, he, he was crucified. I, I think maybe, maybe he would have. I started to say, and he shook his head and he waved me off again. Jesus would be rolling over in his grave if he knew you'd brought politics into our church. (laughs) And of course, that's the rub. It's not our church. What we call our church is his body. We can insist, like Jonah, that our Lord keep out of our politics. That's fine. I'm not a sadist. It makes my life easier. I'm sure it makes Everett's life easier. But notice how that insistence on keeping the two separate, how that insistence, it assumes that the Lord is not a living God. I'm not being speculative. Before the pandemic, having returned from vacation, I arrived back at church on a Tuesday morning with a a long to-do list and my whole week meticulously laid out. And then our Lord, as He's wont to do, messed up all my preconceived plans. He he dragged politics into His church, and He strong-armed us into doing His work. We were in the, the middle of a staff meeting. A visitor buzzed the security intercom at door number two. I need help, she shouted into the speaker in hesitant, broken English. And Dottie, my secretary, buzzed her inside and then summoned me. I walked into the main office and discovered a woman about my age, neatly but simply dressed with her black hair pulled back taut. Three children sat across the same sofa as her. Their names, she told me, were Scarlett, Edward, and Dennis, six, twelve, and fourteen years old, respectively. I offered her my hand, and I introduced myself in broken Spanish. She introduced herself as Carolina. I was a teacher, she said out of the blue, looking like she was struggling to get the English right. I must have looked confused because she went on to explain, and what she told me wasn't what I was expecting, nor was it what I wanted to hear. We just arrived here, she said, last night, 
from Nicaragua. I still wasn't processing her situation, and it must have showed because she quickly added, we left Nicaragua 50 days ago. Why? I asked in Spanish. My community, very dangerous, she said, and wiped away tears. I left my home, my work for them, for my children. And then, as as best she could, she told me about their journey, first by bus, then on foot, and finally stowed away in the back of a delivery truck. Seeking asylum, they'd been separated and detained at the border and then eventually reunited and released on her own recognizance to report back later. She pulled a cell phone out of her back pocket and showed me the documents that corroborated her story, the first one stamped with her mugshot. They arrived here on a Monday and are now, they were then living in in the basement of an acquaintance less than a few minutes' walk from the church, literally a, a stone's throw. God isn't all that concerned with our concerns about keeping politics out of his church. Do you have any food? I asked her. No. Do you have a job lined up? No. Do you have a a lawyer, an abogado? No. What about your children? Are, are, Are they registered for school? And she shook her head and appeared overwhelmed. What are you going to do? I asked. This time she had an answer. I prayed and I prayed all last night, she said. And then she suddenly stopped crying and looked both serious and and euphoric. I, I prayed and finally God spoke to me. He answered me. And God said to come here. Here? And she nodded. God said to me that he'd make you help us. He did, did he? And she smiled and she shook her head and she said, yes. She said, yes, emphatically, like she'd she'd just witnessed a miracle. Isn't that just like God? I muttered under my breath. He knows I don't have time for one more thing, and so he sends you my way. Como, she asked, confused by my mumbling to myself. Never mind, I said. It sounds like Jesus is determined for us to help you, so, so what choice do I have? None, she said matter-of-factly. No choice, like it had been a serious question, as though God had called me whether I liked it or not. You know, once Jonah relents to God's stubborn call upon him, the reluctant prophet walks a day into the depths of the mighty city of Nineveh. In an empty parking lot, say, Jonah stakes up a big revival tent. He he sprinkles sawdust on the ground, arranges rows of wooden pews, and puts a big black Bible on the podium, and he, he rents a sound system. He tacks up promotional posters and passes out flyers all over town. I mean, this is the original Guts Church. I mean, don't forget, Jonah is a Jew. Jonah is an enemy of every single resident in the city. He's sure to get a crowd, and he does. They come by the thousands with their, their children and their servants and their, and their elderly parents, with their dogs and their cats and their cows even. Even the king of Nineveh shows up with his secret service entourage and body man in tow. 
I mean, who knows what they expected? Jonah, still stinking of whale vomit, simply mops his forehead, taps the microphone, clears his throat, and makes the speaker squelch. And then Jonah says, 40 days more, and Nineveh will be overthrown. That's it. An eight-word sermon. It's not even gospel. It's all law. It's, it's just five words in Hebrew. But those little words fell them all. Everyone and everything repents on the spot. The king orders a fast and leads them all to put on sackcloth and ash, even the cows and the goats and the cats, and maybe that whale too, Jonah says. They all repent. They all cry out mightily to God because who knows the king reasons. The God of Israel may relent and change his mind about our judgment. And that is exactly what Jonah had wanted to avoid so badly he attempted to escape to the end of the earth. We had to celebrate. Your brother was lost and now he's found. Like Jesus summoning the disciples from their fishing nets, Jonah knew the word works what it says, and Jonah did not want his enemies to receive the mercy of his Lord. And that's the problem with a living God. A dead God can be kept safely away from our politics. A dead God can be conveniently conformed to our values and views. A dead God can be easily accommodated to our lifestyle and our livelihoods, but you cannot outrun a living and loquacious God. I remember there was a, a young woman in one of the congregations I once served. Her name was Anne. She was a straight-A student at an Ivy League school. She was nearing graduation, and her parents couldn't have been more excited about what lay in her future, maybe a, a graduate degree at another prestigious school, maybe a, a career and no less than a six-figure salary. Instead, Anne threw them all for a loop one day when out of the blue she announced to her parents that rather than doing something they wanted, she was going to work in a clinic in some poor village in Venezuela. I only found out about this when Anne's mother burst into my office one day, clearly assuming I was the one who put the idea into her daughter's head. Red-faced and furious, she said, Preacher, you've got to talk to her. You've got to convince her to change her mind. You've got to show her she's throwing her life away. However, the obedient minister, I met with Anne and communicated all her mother's fears. She was being naive. She was being irresponsible. She was being idealistic. Her, her education should come first. She, she shouldn't jeopardize her career. The gospel's about grace, not works, I told her. Anne looked back at me like I'd disappointed her in some way. Didn't Jesus tell the young man to give up all his stuff and follow him, she asked? Uh, well, yeah, but I mean, Jewish hyperbole and all. He couldn't have been serious. That would have been irresponsible. At least tell me why you're doing this. Why do you think, she asked. Like there could be only one possible answer, and it should be obvious. Jesus sort of came to me, she said, and spoke to me, and he told me, go and do it. He did, did he? And her eyes narrowed like she was about to lay a straight flush down on the table. Are you telling me, pastor, that I should listen to you instead of him? Uh, um, 
Okay, I, I think we're done here. Just leave me out of it when you talk to your parents. <laughs> it's not a children's story. It's a political story. I know we all want to keep politics out of the church. I, I get it. But the problem is, it's not your church. And the risen Christ, the, the living God, He's on the move. He's always going out, calling and conscripting, and He is free to drop whatever work He chooses into your lap, whether or not it obeys the boundaries of what's acceptable. The Lord is no respecter of propriety. With pictures of asylum seekers all over the newspapers, God that week before the pandemic brought politics into my parish hall. And just like that, God got us to working. Meredith, our children's director, found games to occupy the kids while they waited. Peter, my associate pastor, put down what he was doing and, and left to, to stuff his trunk with food for them. And I stared at the 14 items on my to-do list for the day as I waited on hold, making calls all day long for Carolina, connecting her kids with the county, finding her a lawyer, locating services, resources for her kids. When we drove them home later, I carried bags of food inside, and I gave her my cell number, and I told her that if there was anything she needed to call me. It was the sort of compassionate gesture you make to someone when you don't really expect them to take you up on the offer. And later that night, I got a text from a number I didn't recognize. This is Carolina, it said. Thank you. Thank you for your church. Donata. And then I watched the text bubbles roll up and down as she texted another message. The school say I need to go to central office to register my children. How are you going to get there, I texted back. I prayed, she replied. <laughs> and God said, you should take me. <laughs> he did, did he? <laughs> See. And then the next text quickly followed. God say to tell you that I'm baptized. You have an obligation to me as a brother. That's the annoying inconvenience of worshiping a living God, I typed but didn't delete it. And so thanks to Jesus, I spent most of the next day driving her around and driving her kids to get registered and tested and immunized. And then the next day, Jesus apparently summoned my wife and my son to purchase school supplies for all of them. At the end of the week, I mentioned all the details to Dottie, my secretary, and she replied, in order to be a pastor, you must have to really enjoy helping people in need. Enjoy, I asked. Do you know many people in need? Most of them aren't that enjoyable. Then why did you choose to do it? Choose? I didn't choose it at all, I said. I got summoned. Offered to you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.